You're listening to the Pandemic Podcast. We equip you to live the most real life possible in the face of today's crises. My name is Matt Botker, and I'm with two of other friends that I have in my life, Dr. Stephen Kissler, an epidemiologist at Harvard School of Public Health, and Dr. Mark Kissler, who's a doctor at the University of Colorado Hospital. Hey, guys. Good to see you guys. And uh, how are you guys doing? Doing all right, Matt. How are you? Good. I'm good doing good. I'm, I'm excited good. for our first uh, musical episode today. Oh, we, we, we're going to do, we're we, gonna do music. Is that, oh, that's my other, is that my other podcast? I thought <laughs> oh, yeah. we were doing the, on, the barbershop quartet. You, you yeah. are on the wrong. That's not, yeah. that's not this one. Dear God, please, we're not doing that. <laughs> I mean, you're going to do two parts for us. <laughs> we we, we, we yeah. You do the bass and the alto. Oh uh, yeah, I, that, that's not going to happen. <laughs> Oh man. Well, it's good to see you guys. I'm good to be back on, on this uh, beautiful Thursday here in Colorado. Uh, nice, warm. I'm assuming it's getting better for you over there. Um, oh Steven. yeah. yeah it's yeah. great. It's... Good. I am glad we are having spring. It feels good. And this Sunday is Mother's Day. So happy Mother's Day to all those mothers out there who make the enormous and biggest sacrifice of never having vacation time. And, uh, and, and so, uh, it is quite the trip, a huge sacrifice, but so worth it. So happy mother's day to everybody out there. Uh, I kind of want to hit the news, a couple things I want to chat about. Uh, and then we, we want to just kind of riff more a little bit, kind of what we we're talking about on Monday, uh, but more on a personal level and see kind of where it goes. Uh, but one of the f- first things I saw here, uh, of course, you know, this is how it is. It's, it's every, every time we have an episode, there's at least one of these articles that just are really great for grabbing my attention. And I'm guessing I'm not the only one. And that is that study reports of this mutation, uh, a new strain that is more contagious than, than all the other coronaviruses out there, which apparently in some circles is like six or seven or eight strains. Uh, you know, I read this article on the other side, Ed Young again, once again from the Atlantic, who kind of dispelled this this article, but put some context in this. Uh, Stephen or Mark, do you want to riff about this for a few moments about what this really is and uh, how concerned really should we be about this one study here? And I think it was in Los Angeles or at least in California, right? Stephen, do you have anything you want to chime in first? Yeah. So I went back and skimmed through the the original study too, to try to get a sense of what was going on there. And they, like many groups up to this point, have identified a number of different mutations that that are present in various uh, viruses that have been sampled from different people. Um, and that in itself is not not a cause for concern at all. I mean, that's that's kind of what viruses do. That's that's their that's their strategy. And most of those mutations are actually harmful to the virus. They 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 make it less easy to spread, less easy to reproduce, those kinds of things. And then, uh, and the ones that aren't harmful are usually just really don't do anything um, for the most part. You know, and it is possible for a virus to mutate so that it, you know, can evade our immune system or maybe can become more transmissible or more virulent. But the the evidence that was suggested in this article is it it merits a closer look for sure, but it's far from conclusive evidence that there's been a mutation that has made for a more transmissible virus. Uh, basically, what they were saying is they found a mutation in the virus genome and that in a lot of cases, that same strain in a lot of different geographic regions, that strain is more prevalent than um, the other. And, and I'm using strain very loosely here. It's it's a particular type of mutation. We, we, it's not really a different strain because it's just like a single mutation. It's like a point mutation. Um, so it's a very, very closely related to the thing that's already circulating. And and you can get these fluctuations in, in, in the prevalence of different viral mutations in a population just by chance as well, very easily. In fact, over a long period of time, if two mutations
mutations are spreading, you're guaranteed that one of them will take over the population and one of them will die away, even if there's absolutely no difference in their transmissibility. That's that's just a statistical fact. That's the way that it works, that evolution and mutation works. So I think it's worth taking a closer look at for sure, but there's going to be need to be a lot more evidence to, to really say convincingly that this that this is really a, a strain that, that is more transmissible or is more important somehow than the ones that we've seen in other places already. Great. I feel like this is just a lesson of just the life of what we're in right now. And I, yeah, I, I want to stop saying tuck and tongue in cheek that it's complicated, but this is just another great example by which here you have an article that uh, has a lot of hype behind it, a lot of emotion behind it, which means it's fueled a lot of times by fear. And uh, with really behind it, behind the curtain, I mean, you guys, you know what I've been thinking about lately? The Wizard of Oz. So much lately. And you know why? Because there's this big voice, right? That, that can really offer the solution to everything. We find out it's just a little guy. And, 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 a little, and, and, and in the end, you know what the real, the real moral of the whole story was, was the answer was kind of within yourself. You know, these, 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 these people that were trying to find a solution outside of themselves, but, but was it within themselves? And so how, how am I thinking about it? Well, this, this curtain that we're trying to peel back and we can put this veneer in front of us because we want to grasp onto something so easily and some conclusion. I'm like, ah, oh, it's this, it's this, it's this. But I think the reason why I pulled this article is I just realized that, okay, here's a front facing article that sounds like a simple truth. But then when you unfold that curtain, it's much more complicated. There's this more, there's more, there's more mechanisms behind it. And Stephen, you just said it perfectly. When I read the article by Steve, uh, Ed Young, and I'll put it in the show notes at the, at the end, uh, where he kind of talked about it. And, I, and this is my non-scientific jargon language I'm going to use now, right? So I think it was like a DG mutation, whatever. I don't care what that means, but I know the alphabet. So I got D and I got G and I know they're different, right? <laughs> so, so it's like, you know, D and G were manifest in China, right? Early on. And so it, it's, it's, it's like almost like, you know, all the D's and G's and maybe more of the G's got on the bus, right? To travel to, to the U.S. Just by just, they happened to get the tickets right before they closed down the last shop. They were smarter in the sense of, they just happened to be lucky and got on the last flight. And they flew to the US and they flew, maybe flew to Italy and it just blew up there, right? So this helped me understand. It's just, there's so many other factors involved than just, okay, it's, 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 it's widespread in Italy. It's widespread or becoming more here uh, in America. It's because it's a more vicious, you know, uh, a virus. It's not that. It's more complicated. There's a lot more things involved. They even mentioned how it depends on the host, right? If it's a healthy host that actually, you know, that can easily transmit to other people and that maybe that person has a lot of social circles <laughs> and likes to go out and have fun. And so there's, it's, it really is complicated people. And so, there, you know, before we got on the air, I don't throw this to Mark for a second here. I think we were all banging our heads, just like, what is going on? And, and we'll get to this in a second, but I, I feel being on this podcast and I'm, I'm the nobody. I'm just the, the, the talking head who, who, who offers maybe a deeper approach, but uh, to maybe some things we can help us, but the actual science behind it, it's Stephen and Mark and I trust them. And then I, and I look at the rest of the world and I feel cornered and I feel like I'm like, like, especially on social media, since people know that I put on this podcast that I feel like I'm being put in this corner and I, and I have to defend this stance and my, my, my gut instinct, right. Or my instinct, excuse me, just my instinct is just to grab whatever I can to fight back. And I've got to fight that tendency because more than anything, I don't want to fall prey to like being pigeonholed and then live out of a pigeonhole. Like I want to, I want to like do my best to follow the data and the truth uh, and find the best way through this. Mark, do you have anything to add on uh, dealing with this 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 crazy mutation that's going to be like Jaws and and maybe potentially uh, swallow us? 
<laughs> no, I think what Stephen said is, you know, uh, I don't think I have anything to add to that. I think that's a great way to to think about it. By the way, did you guys see that? That uh, I'll put the show to Stephen Colbert. The uh, the Jaws. Uh, no, I don't see this. Okay, uh, it's great. They were talking about. <laughs> okay, guys, you guys have to watch this. Okay, so basically, uh, he did a meme of basically of of like maybe a spring break when all the all the guys and the girls go out and they go to the beach and uh, didn't really abide by naturally social distancing. And so he said, "What would it be like if if it wasn't the coronavirus, but it was Jaws that was the threat?" And so they're all on the beach and just having a fun time, and this, and they just, you see Jaws swallowing them up one by one. It is absolutely hilarious, but they don't care. They're just having a great time. And it's just Jaws, right? So it was really, really funny. So I'll put that in the show notes as well. Nice. Okay. So uh, we were talking about the mutation. One other thing that I wanted to talk about, which I think is a good segue into this deeper talk, is I saw this article, The Psychology Behind Why Some People Won't Wear Masks. Uh, and uh, it, I don't think it takes much of a deep psychology to probably understand why, at least my my gut instinct. And it, the conclusion was this, that people don't like being told what to do. I mean, who doesn't? I mean, who likes to be treated as an infant or an adolescent? Nobody does. People want to be inspired. And this is the goal, right? We want to be inspired to do the right thing, not to be forced to do the right thing. We love our freedoms. And particularly in America, we love having the individual rights, individual freedom as part of what it means to be American. Uh, but I, you know, I was thinking back to, uh, and it's in the article itself of, it's like going back to the sixties and seventies. And when I was, I was a kid, not in the sixties guys. So just don't start there. So eighties is, is my, is my childhood. Uh, that's where kind of it starts. But in the eighties, smoking in restaurants, right. was still a really widespread thing. I remember always going in with my, with my, my family and choosing the non-smoking section, even though FYI, my mom was a smoker, but we we knew that it'd be better to be there. You wouldn't have, you wouldn't be coughing so much, and you know, it'd be on that on that section. And then finally, uh, over time, we realized that doesn't sections don't really do much for uh, for for smoking uh, for when you're inside a building. So you know they got rid of it, and I could only imagine right the the the. Uh, the, the, the riled of the feathers that happened to those who their rights removed from actually, you know, being smokers and not feeling like you could go in, uh, to, uh, to a restaurant. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and so now we're the same thing, but now in a very particular way with the, with, with the coronavirus. And so now we're being told to wear a mask and I want to go into the segue. I think it's perfect off, off, off the recording. Uh, Stephen mentioned this idea about the pandemic. He said he really thought the, the pandemic was unmasking a lot of things like, oh my gosh, that is hilarious. It's so perfect because in the end, you guys, Stephen, you nailed it. The pandemic is doing more unmasking than masking right now. I mean, do, do we agree with that? Do you guys feel the same thing right now? Yeah, it sure seems that way. Yeah, it totally seems. And I'm feeling this all over. Just the other... And I want to throw this back to you guys to, to talk about just the other day, I met with a friend who knew uh, we were on this podcast and he's listened a few times. And so his first, his first thing was to me, it was like, Hey, kind of, he had this like little smirk. We were on zoom, right? He had a little smirk. So, uh, how about those numbers, Matt? Not quite meeting, uh, what you thought they were going to go. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, did you listen to our last episode? <laughs> Which he didn't right? this whole, this whole concept that Steven is is in a bad position for the rest of his life. That you know, if he's right, he's wrong. If he's wrong, he's terribly wrong, and he's stupid. So and so, I, I it was so funny how like we just had that recording, and the very next day I get that first, the very first thing I get from somebody, an outsider of my home, uh, is that question. So and you know he has a particular worldview, and he was talking about that, and he, they started talking about you know Fauci and, and relationships to vaccines. I'm like I don't even know where this is going. I tried to Google it, I couldn't find it anywhere. Uh, and then he mentioned the CDC removed 
removed, uh, you know, tons, tons of these deaths. What do you think about that, Matt? I mean, I mean, what do you think about that? You know, that, that kind of question. So I want to throw this to you, Mark. I mean, and I try to do my best as a citizen who is a patient sometimes, but not a doctor to explain that from what I've read, determining a death is a complicated thing. And Mark, you were telling me, it's not like you've, you've never done this before. You've filled out death certificates. Can you explain maybe how this is not necessarily just a COVID unique situation? Yeah. You know, it sounds what it looks like happened is that the the CDC had been using it sort of a different way of counting the deaths and then switched over to using actual death certificate numbers, which has a lag time to it. It doesn't necessarily represent what was most recently happening or reported. And there's some additional steps that have to happen to code in the COVID-19 as a cause of death. There's been some kind of chatter that maybe the death rates are being inflated and that individuals who die of other things, while coincidentally also having a COVID-19 infection are being attributed to COVID-19. And so that's been one of the criticisms that I've heard in uh, in certain regions that saying essentially that that's part of a more overarching goal to inflate how dangerous this is. And that, well, a lot of these people, you know, the argument, a lot of these people would have died anyway of their underlying condition. Um, why are we counting it a COVID-19 death? Um it is complicated. You know, I think that when you have a cause of death, you know, of course there are a lot of things that go into that, but if, even if somebody is, is relatively ill at baseline and then they come in with a COVID-19 infection, they're there because of that, that it's, it's difficult to say that that wasn't the, you know, the precipitating cause of the chain of events that eventually lead to a death. And so I think what one of the ways, I mean, I'm, it happens in my experience, you know, you fill out the death certificate, you fill out to the best of your clinical ability, sort of the chain of events uh, and the chain of specific, very specific pathophysiologic issues that led to death. Um, and so I think, you know, this is one of these really interesting instances and we're seeing it again and again and again is where we have, there's, there's just concern that there's like a social element or political element, even, even in something that seems to be as cut and dry as a cause of death. And, you know, it's not, it's not a totally new thing. This is like, this is a very important idea. Um, and the idea that, that politics, you know, and that sort of social cultural things are are deeply intertwined with the medical and the scientific. So understanding that is, you know, on one level, but, but then leaping immediately to the conclusion that somebody's manipulating it, that it's all hoax, that it's falsified and this sort of thing is kind of taking, you know, taking lots of steps at once. And so I think, yes, we can have an understanding. We can have a, you know, a really interesting conversation, I think about, you know, biopolitics as Michel Foucault, the, the French philosopher talked about. And so this, you know, this idea of like the ways in which our biology and, you know, and, and the practices around health and disease and stuff are all deeply situated in a cultural context. You know, absolutely. And I think we can talk, talk about that. And then there's kind of this way that that gets really flattened and turned into a, you know, a tweet or a Facebook post that, you know, says that, that there's something fishy going on. Um, you know, and I think that for me, that's been sort of the, the thing that I've, I've been walking the last couple of weeks has been, uh, you know, it felt like we started this as a scientific communication podcast. We're like, <laughs> let's, let's get together and let's talk about, you know, how do we bring just a vast amount of information to a place where it's understandable, you know, where it's, where we can, kind of engage with it and grapple with it from an intellectual standpoint? How do we talk about some of these key issues? You know, it feels like it, it was 
a century ago that we were talking about sensitivity and specificity because all of a sudden the, the discourse has shifted. Um, and, and so our discourse is no longer on let's all kind of bend our heads over the same scientific facts and figure out what that means for our lives. It's, it's gone to a different level where we are, there's this kind of cultural skepticism in certain places of the fact that facts you know, are there to begin with and where they come from and who's pulling the strings. And it just feels like there's been this major shift and it, one that's, that's, you know, as fast as we've had to kind of keep up with things, you know, from the very beginning, it feels like things have been changing and changing and changing yet again, you know, here we're in a place where we're just, where our discourse has changed in a way that I find kind of uh, uh, hard, you know, hard to know what to do with, uh, to be honest with you. Stephen, I know with you, you mentioned going to, and I, I want to put a pin on that, Mark, because I think that's another discussion I want to go deeper in when you said that the discourse has shifted. Uh, let's put a pin on that and come back in just a second, because I think uh, I, I, I have something I want to quote from an article that I wrote that might help to maybe put that in perspective, even though I don't really have an answer of how this discourse exactly happened and what's really behind it. But Stephen, you were mentioned even like about you're the epidemiologist, you're at Harvard, right? So you're already pigeonholed to be a certain kind of scientist by some of my circles around me. But so lumping you in with this COVID death, you're even just saying you 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 guys don't even take this that seriously because you you already are already already aware of the fact that it's complicated, right? Right. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, as you know, as epidemiologists, we're always trying to pay close attention to you know what what is the denominator, what is what is it, what does it actually mean, and like. You know, it's it's never the case that a, that a death is a death is a death, or a positive test is a positive test. You know, you have to like really, really pay attention to what it is. And like, the fact is, these these things do shift over time based on administrative decisions and and whatever else. And and you know, sometimes maybe there is some degree of political influence and these sorts of things that are behind this as well. I mean, I think that 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 has happened in various places and and maybe here to some extent too. But the important thing is to know what has happened and then you can adjust for it and then you just try to make the best decisions that you can based on you know where where the data are coming from i think that's part of being a you know i think we talked a little bit about this last time too that there's like there's something about a healthy scientific skepticism also that sits somewhere it's it's like related to but is somehow different from you know an an utter distrust in reality in some sense and recognizing that like what we see and observe is is a very imperfect representation of what is real and what is actually there what is actually going on and we're trying to see underneath you know like death counts and case counts and these sorts of things to what's actually going on and, and that vision is always going to be imperfect but but there seems to be a, a push to just sort of say that like there there's almost this 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 nihilism of fact there's like this sense of that that like none of it is is trustworthy. It's all just sort of crazy. And so all that exists anymore is, is, is an assertion of, of, of what I believe to be true, because that's the only thing I can pin, pin my hope. It's like, you know, yeah, it's, it's this, it's this sort of sense of utter, utter self-sufficiency in a way that like, that my, my, my view of the world is all that I need because that is, that is the fullness of reality in some sense that it seems to be the case. And, and we're all susceptible to that at different times in our lives. I think, I mean, I think there's a deep temptation to that for sure. Um, and it takes real work to, to, to move aside from that. Um, and I think that's maybe the problem that, that we're beginning to see. Yeah. I think it's an interesting thing, you know, where you have like the individual, um, you know, I, I need to be skeptical of everything. Right. But at the same time, my vision for things is a little like, I don't, I'm not an epidemiologist and I'm not, you know, and, and the fact is that I go about my life 
trusting certain things and certain authorities all the time. Um, but we're in this place where it's almost like this crisis of like, I, there is, it's, I think nihilism, kind of a nihilism of belief or nihilism of trust in anything. And then from there you end up just trusting like certain authorities who may not be authorities on anything, but that kind of tribal identity. It's a really weird, weird kind of situation. You know, one thing I've, I've found sort of helpful with, with self-reflection in this is that I think that, I think it's often the case that we, we, we interpret the world through the way in which we see ourselves. I think this is true for me. I mean, if, where, you know, for example, if, if, if I'm in a state of my life in which I am very mistrustful, I end I usually don't trust what other people are saying to me either. Like if, if, if I don't trust myself, I'm, I find it harder to trust others. If I'm, if I'm skeptical of myself or if I feel like I'm being sort of like pulling strings or like trying to man manipulate others, I sort of assume that that's the way that people are treating me as well. Or if I'm trying to act very authentically and honestly, I often assume for better or for worse that that's what people are trying to do for me too. And so I think that there's, there, there's something too about like that, that there's some value to, doing some self-reflection and saying like, you know, how, how are we sort of observing the situation going on? Like, like, am I, am I seeing a lot of things as, as, as sort of different forces out to manipulate myself or the economy or the world? And, and maybe that's true, but, but maybe there's also an element in myself that, that feels like I'm, you know, that maybe that's, there's something about my orientation towards the world too, that is, that is sort of reflecting the same sort of thing that I seem to be seeing in others. And I think that that's just worth, worth us maybe thinking about, like, where is that coming from? That's great. I, yeah, that's exactly how I feel as well. I was thinking about how you were talking about earlier, Stephen, this idea of suspicion and this idea that like, because my friend, when I was mentioning you, Stephen, and about how, you know, just kind of giving your, like, I, I trust him, you know, he's, he's researching he's and then, you know, his, his response was, well, maybe he's not given all the information, right? Maybe Stephen, and first of all, like the idea that like you're being handed information, like here's your, here's your textbooks, uh, conclude on these things. Don't look anything else, you know, that, that, that kind of, so this, this a priori, like suspicion, like I start with suspicion, not like I earn my way to suspicion. I think that has really vexed us like this, that I, I start with this. And I, and I think it's a combination of what you were just saying, Mark, as well, of or uh, Stephen, you were saying this, how I think a lot of times we identify with something that maybe we ought not to identify with, that we shouldn't have a strong identity with. Like, so I identify as my being, as my political party, right? It's such an enmeshment. So then when I feel like I'm being attacked or being uh, exposed, I feel like I myself am being, right, being torn down, that I'm, I'm starting to lose my own life. And then it's just like a dog being cornered, like me feeling like I'm putting a stake in the ground to survive my own life. And so you grab anything you can to just defend it. And now reason has got out the window. A discourse has gone out of the window, like genuine discourse. It's now, now I feel like everybody is moving into self-preservation mode. We've lost the whole ticket. We've lost the whole framework of like, what are we fighting I thought we were fighting a virus, guys, but now we're fighting for our own lives, right? And that's why I feel like, but in a different way, right? First, it was the virus that was that was out to destroy us. Now it's a political party that's out to destroy us, or some ideologies out to destroy us. So that's why I'm gonna come back to this pin that I mentioned, this discourse, and read this this quote from you from uh, an article that I read. And I think helps to kind of frame this this picture a little bit of, of how I feel like the discourse has shifted. And, and Stephen and Mark, you can chime in on this. The quote, this is the title, The Great Price of America, America's Great Lockdowns from the Public Discourse. It says, from this standpoint, COVID-19 could augment uh, emergent attitudinal uh, obstacles to the pro-growth policies that America will need after our corona nightmare has passed. 
As much as some of the left and right are reluctant to admit it, growth is the only alternative to mass poverty. Moreover, uh, without, moreover, without economic growth, it becomes harder to sustain the jobs, businesses, philanthropy, cultural activities, and education, legal, and religious institutions that help us pursue the freely chose, uh, ch- uh, choose goods like creativity, knowledge, work, beauty, charity, and truth that are central to human flourishing. Should the coronavirus result in more Americans becoming indifferent to these realities, it would surely constitute one of COVID-19's greatest long-term victories over us. I loved this quote. And the reason why, because I think this is how, and Mark and Steve, you can chime in now that I feel like the, the, the discourse has shifted. When we were early on, we were talking about all these things you just said, Mark, that I already forgot, right? The, the whatever, whatever these things uh, are not, right? Then it got, then we all went millennial and went just are, and that confused me, right? So all these different things, we were talking about this, the beginning, where are we at? Where is it going? And now it's, communism, socialism, it's the, 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 the language has, sh- has shifted. And my greatest fear guys is that because we, so we, so we now no longer looking at the virus and how we can help ourselves get rid of it and then open up our doors and uh, go back to a new sense of normalcy and maybe come out of this better than we did before by having a greater sense of awareness of how uh, how things affect each other, right? On an individual level and a social level. I feel like now we're going to have a self-fulfilling prophecy that I feel like because right now we've lost the attention of what's before us, we're going to actually have less freedom that we should have in the end because we're fighting a different fight and then the war is still going on and it's going to destroy us. And then we're going to have less government support as well. So we're going to have less individual rights and less government support. And both are like, what just happened? We lost it, right? I mean, what what do you what are you guys feeling about this? Yeah, I mean, I think I mean, there's so there's there's a lot there to respond to. I think you know, going to the initial quote, it's interesting that came you know kind of at the end of an article where he's talking about he's he's kind of advocating for this pro growth you know economy as a post pandemic you know thing, and so and you know well you know well taken that's you know this is part of our public discourse, um, which is like how you know do we rebuild in a way that's more socialist? Do we rebuild in a way that's more deeply kind of capitalist? Do we emphasize growth to emphasize aid, you know, how do we do? And so like kind of getting into the nuts and bolts. And I think where, and so that is, you know, leave that where it is. I'm not an economist and, you know, I think there's, but, but the, this idea that he kind of lands or gestures towards at the end, you know, which is this one of like, how do we foreground issues surrounding human flourishing? How do we foreground um, kind of the practices, institutions, traditions, and commitments to, uh, each other into the things that are of human value, you know, in the midst of this. And I think that that to me, when I when I listen to that, is kind of the part where I'm like, oh, okay. So so what we're talking about, you know, he's he's situating that kind of economic argument within this larger argument, right? About it, essentially how do we start to consolidate conversation around good, you know, the goods for our society. And and I do think, I mean, I think that that is precisely the thing. And it's probably, and it's been lacking for a while. It's just, it, just an ability to really communicate, have discourse about, to disagree about in a way that is productive, these goods um, and this, this, these visions or versions of, of human flourishing. And so, if, you know, yet, you know, of course, a global crisis like this will kind of emphasize those fault lines and the inabilities to communicate, you know, of course, uh, when we're, our society is kind of pressed to a place where we're stressed and, you know, economically depressed and at a breaking point, um, that, that those same 
types of disagreements and those same types of inability to communicate are going to be at the fore. And I think for me, the question is, you know, reading that, I think that sure, you know, maybe one of the answers is an economic, you know, maybe it is a pro-growth economy, you know, maybe it is a different version of an economic reality. But what I'm really interested in is what kind of other practices need to happen even before that. Like, what do we, what do we do now, if it's you know not not too late to salvage some sort of public discourse that's real, you know, to salvage some sort of sense of community, even though there are strong disagreements within that community, and and to preserve sort of a, these ideas about what human flourishing and like to foreground those 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 to me seem to be the big questions, you know, and there there are people who have thought deeply about that, but they're not necessarily the people that I see kind of being. Uh, tweeted about right now, you know. Oh, man, you and, only got like 140 characters. You got to be succinct, <laughs> man. You got to you got to make this over simplistic. Yeah, right, right, and you know, not to bemoan, but you know, there's uh, not to be, not to bemoan the the whole way that our not just the content of our discourse, but the modalities of our discourse have shifted. But like, okay, let's you know, we can beat that dead horse off the air, but it's real. You know, and it is it is important to note, you know, I think there's that by limiting our language and by limiting our modes of expression, we limit what we can say by limiting our attention for a thought out argument. We limit our ability to engage in thought out arguments. And um, it, you know, that's pretty it's I've been, you know, we got we got pretty deep and dark last you know, on Tuesday or Monday, <laughs> Monday. too. And I'm like, you don't know what day it is. trying to, yeah, I don't, I don't know what day it is ever, you know? And, <laughs> and, I, uh, and you know, and I don't want to, I'm not, I also don't want to get on a soapbox because my intellectual humility point came back to me after a, uh, in, in the house, Katie reminded me of intellectual humility when I much needed reminding. She's like, weren't you talking on your podcast about, it was like something that happened in that, you know, about over dinner oh, or something. Man. <laughs> so oh, like, man. Speaking of, you know, the right way to cook those potatoes. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, all right. So I'm not going to make any like strong. <laughs> <laughs> it'll it'll come yeah. back to bite me. Yeah, I have, I have somebody don't make any honest. strong opinions yeah, here. You're gonna get right. in trouble. That's by your right. Way. I'm gonna get, which is good. I deserve. That's you know. That's excellent. That's that being great. said, I mean that's where I'm at. I, I think like what, what I'm trying to say is I'm trying to to not veer too deep in into that personally um, or on the podcast. But there's these there are these kind of deep seated feelings of discontent, of frustration um, at just the situation and just the way that the discourse has shifted and the way that the discourse is no longer feeling like a discourse. Exactly. Steven, everything? Yeah. I mean, I think so uh, we're, we're sort of circling around, you know, and been talking about this idea of the, just that there's something about this event that is um, revealing a lot of things, revealing things about ourselves and about our society. And in some sense, it's like this, this massive event that's sort of almost feels like it's like synchronizing all of us in a common experience so that there's this, you know, we had this very fractured discourse beforehand, but part of that was just because we were all talking about different things. But now, now we're sort of, it's still very fractured, but we're at least sort of many of us are still talking about the same thing. And in some sense, that's, I think that's rather than resolving things, that's kind of brought it to a fever pitch, you know, because now, now it's like really, really concentrated and really intense. And I'm not sure what to do with that, but there's there's another thing that I've been thinking about, which is that there's I mean there's there's an element of of this where I I almost feel like as a culture as a society where really what what all of this seems to be 
about is us trying to make sense of like, what is this? Like, what is the coronavirus? Like, is it, is it a little nucleocapsid thing that can infect your passages or is it, is it like a threat to our day-to-day life? Is it, is it a modern day flood? Is it like, is it nothing, you know, and we're, and that's, those are sort of the things that we're trying to come to grips with, but, but we're doing it in this very sort of, and myself included in, in this very, you know, sort of haphazard way a lot of the time and like trying to, uh, and so what ends up happening is, is, is we see that there's, there, there is, or there's possibly this, this big event that's happening and this thing, this, this marker in our collective life that will delineate a time before from a time after. And, and a lot of what we're trying to do is, is I think, I think what we're trying to do is, is to bring to light our hopes for what that time after will look like. But, you know, and, and so I, so I, I do think that a lot of this, this disagreement and a lot of this sort of confusion that's happening now is really rooted in this, in this sense of hope and this understanding that what will come after will not be the same as what came before, that we're, we're all going to be sort of changed by this. And this will be sort of a, a, a big post and a turning point in our collective society and our collective history. And, and it makes a lot of sense that, that there would be a lot of impassioned arguments that if things are going to change, we, we want to change them in a way that we think is better. And we all have very different notions of what that better is. And, but, but, but then, you know, I think that, that, that this is all complicated then by what Mark was saying is that we, we only have 140 characters to express what that good is that we're, that we're shooting for. And so, and so I, I worry that, that the after will be destined to a good, to, to a set of goods that only, that only exist on the span of seconds and not spans of a lifetime, you know, in a sense that, that, that just the very nature of our, of our ability to communicate is sort of restricting, not only our ability to communicate, but our ability to actually, like, it, it's sort of, it's sort of taking our goods and putting them in a box <laughs> that's, that, that, that you can't really experience in, in a full way. So, so I think those are some of my concerns as well. And I mean, I think, I think it makes sense. I think this is something that's really worth grappling with and, and, and arguing over, you know, like this is getting, getting the post pandemic period, right. Is, 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 is a vital importance. Absolutely. And my hope is just that, that it can be, it can be a discourse and a true discourse and something that, you know, that, that we can collectively as a community come to, come to what that good is and articulate it and then act towards it. It's great. It is. It, um, it's just so natural. And I keep thinking, I keep going back to this idea of like, we're collectively experiencing sort of an image of what it's like to go through a serious illness, even though we're not necessarily sick, our lives have been interrupted in a way that is common with an, you know, an illness. And we're thrust in this place where we're kind of struggling to make meaning out of it. And, you know, like Stephen, you were saying, just like this sense of like, to tell the right story about what happened and what's happening and what's going to happen. And we have all of these stories that are flying around kind of rival versions of, of that, um, and different layers of meaning too. Um, just as you were alluding to, there's, you know, there's just different layers of meaning. And this is something, it is a very, you know, human thing. And it's a very, very human thing to experience with illness. This is illnesses as Rita Sharon, who's out of Columbia um, and does a lot of the, she was the founder of the narrative medicine movement. She says, you know, illness is a call for stories that, that there's this way that, that there's like a primary desire to just tell the right story about what's going on. And I think maybe that's the thing is it's not so much that we shouldn't have rival versions or that we shouldn't have you know, discourse or disagreement. Um, but it is a sense of just like, how do we kind of collectively move towards something that's, that's real and true when the categories of those are, are under scrutiny that like, there's question if there is anything 
that's true to tell. And so then it becomes just who can tell the loudest and the longest. That's great. I was thinking of a, a few things when you were, guys were talking that Stephen, you're mentioning the, col the collective experience. And I think that is so right where I feel as if before this happened, we clearly had an enormous division within our country, right? The U S it was a large, but largely it, it largely unaffected most people. It was just like, you could, you could remove yourself from that if you wanted to. Now, now it affects almost everyone, right? On a very individual. So now people have buy-in. So it's, so maybe, maybe the, not the right one is to, there's more unmasking. I mean, there is unmasking, but there's an enormous elevation, uh, an elevation of what we've been experiencing to now it's, it's at, at, at you said, Stephen, it's at fever pitch. So what is the best thing that we should be doing right now? We can end with this. I, it's like back to the basics, you know, I, you know, Mark, you said, be careful what you say because your wife might listen. Uh, so I don't want to say this because, uh, but then again, my <laughs> wife doesn't listen. I told her not to listen. Uh, so, so, so I can say this and be a total hypocrite to, to, to the world. But the biggest thing we can do in disc discourse is listen, right. Uh, to really be able to listen to the other side. Cause that's my first, my first, in, in my first instinct on Facebook is to read it and not even take a breath and start typing a response, right? And, and I'm just going in for the kill, guys. And that is not the right, it's only it's only elevating the, the fever pitch and making it worse and not just like, tell me more. Listen, what's really going on? And as Mark said, maybe get the narrative behind the narrative, the story behind the story and just listen to what's going on. And and because in the, in the end, we listen to the people we trust for better, for worse. We've learned this, we've learned this. There's some probably some people that probably aren't trustworthy or saying some stuff that's uh, making a big follow, following. And so really being able to listen to win that right to be heard. Because in the end, we want discourse, not discord, right? Right now we have discord all over the place. It's, just, it's, it's, it's fact. Nobody's listening to each other. We're shouting over each other. And one thing I could learn from this, and it could better my own relationship with my wife and the rest of the world who has, who has contact with me, is to listen and to know where they're at, where they're coming from. Earn that trust, which might take more than just an hour. It could take a day or a week. Uh, and then, and then I know my best time that I did this was at Starbucks. I way back in the day, I worked at Starbucks and I had to work with these peeps all the time. And we had a diversity of people talk about pluralism. We were all over the map and what we thought. But the thing is that was my one real genuine experience guys that we really did have a genuine love for each other, even though we thought radical, I mean, there is, I, I, I cannot overemphasize this guys. Like I'm not going to like expose this, but it was the most diverse you could possibly be. And we would go out to the restaurants and bars afterwards, which nobody can right now, but we, but we would go and we would just chat and we'd talk about this. And I would be able to talk about some really difficult things that affect people in front of me. And in the end, there were high fives, cheers, and hanging out. And the only reason why is because I, we earned trust because we, we hung together and we loved each other, right? So um, this is the difficult part on Facebook and Instagram because you don't have the same relationship. You just don't. Uh, and so trying to have discourse on a social media platform is pretty much pointless, right? Uh, because that trust, you're just another avatar to somebody else. Uh, you're not a person. Uh, I, it's, it's easy to like rip somebody apart over Facebook, but then when you see them face to face the next week, also you feel a lot of remorse of what you just said, because you, you realize, oh yeah, dang, they're not an avatar. They're a human being, right? And they have, they have, they have emotions and they have a story. You don't know what's going on. Yeah. And I think, I, I mean, I, I love that. And it, this has got to be a time when we think about some concrete ways to work, you know, because it's easy. I think it's easy to kind of bemoan the way that our ways of relating have changed, both because of the pandemic and because of whatever, you know, the Internet, everything. 
but we are still here and creative and we need to, we've just got to start figuring out some positive solutions and what, you know, ways to, um, to kind of communicate and, and consolidate these things, um, and, and have these conversations. So I, I'd be interested, you know, we'll have to, we'll chat about that. I'm sure, you know, offline too, about just ways in, in our, in our lives, but it seems to be that it's like, that is, you know, sure we can identify some of these barriers and these, these issues. And I think the hope is, you know, I think Matt, what you've been, you know, bringing a lot is like, how do we start to concretely, uh, change the way that we do things? Absolutely. Well, I think it's a great way to land. We'll riff off the air a little bit about how we can provide more, maybe possibilities of how we can engage people who may disagree with, you know, the different areas by which we the people think how the economy and how the government and how society should open back up again and, and how big or how little the coronavirus is affecting the world in the U.S. But in the meantime... Um, just want to, uh, if you have a moment and you can uh, give us a rating, uh, on iTunes, we'd greatly appreciate that. I'll put that in the show notes as well, as well as if you have a few extra dollars in your pocket and you're able to help support us to get the stuff we need to keep this going. That's at patreon.com P A T R E O N.com slash pandemic podcast. Or if you don't want to give on a regular basis, I totally get that. You can just do a one-time small donation. You can do that through PayPal or Venmo, and you'll see those in the show notes. If you want to get a hold of Stephen Kistler, S-T-E-P-H-E-N, so let me do that again, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-K-S-S-L-E-R, uh, on Twitter. For me, any questions on the podcast, M-A-T-T-B-O-E-T-T-G-E-R, you can never, ever get a hold of Mark. We just keep him in private so he can go to the hospital and do his thing. And uh, we hope you have an awesome and wonderful day, and we'll see you guys on Monday. Take care. Bye-bye.